the book of Hosea. It's 14 chapters. It has 197 verses. It is considered uh, by many one of the first minor prophets. There's some that don't like that term minor prophets because uh, maybe they think we're making reference to uh, the writing of what they have to say is not as important as, say, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. That is not the case when they say the term minor prophets. It simply means that what they wrote in quantity is smaller than what Isaiah or what they call the major prophets wrote. What Isaiah has to say in quantity may be smaller, but the quality of it is just as major as any other book in the Bible. The reason that I point out that there are 197 verses in Hosea is that as you read through this book, there's going to be a couple of things. As a matter of fact, about six times, you're going to read something and you're going to say, that sounds familiar. And that's because it does. It's because six verses out of Hosea are requoted uh, either once or twice in the New Testament. Now, if you do the mathematics on that, that six verses out of 197 are quoted, that's only 3% of the book that's requoted in the New Testament. But the verses that are quoted are some fairly powerful things, especially the ones quoted by the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you a couple of examples this morning, uh, and maybe we'll just kind of start with, I'll point out these verses, and then we'll go back to chapter 1 where we'd like to spend uh, the remainder of our day. So, for example, if you turn to uh, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, uh, Hosea writes, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Uh, this was during the time when the Lord was speaking to the shallow repentance of Ephraim. Uh, this verse here is quoted twice in the New Testament. First time is Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13. The second time is Matthew chapter 12 and verse 7. Both of these quotations are by the Lord Jesus Christ. So he himself gives uh, great validity uh, to this chapter and, and to this book. And when he says in Matthew 9 and Matthew 12 that I desired mercy more than sacrifice, uh, one of the things that's under consideration in the New Testament uh, is when he and his disciples were walking on the Sabbath day and they were hungry, and so they decided to turn into a field and pull off a couple of ears of corn and eat them. Well, Sadducees and Pharisees, they just flew into a rage over this because your disciples are doing something that is forbidden on the Sabbath day, and that was they were forbidden to work on the Sabbath day. You were not allowed to then pluck ears of corn, even if you were hungry, because if somebody saw that and saw that that was okay, that might lead to harvesting. And the it might lead to doctrine has probably been one of the most dangerous and devastating things this world has ever seen. I don't want to do this. It might lead to something else. don't want to do this. It might lead to, to this, that, and the other. Well, there is time for caution in everybody's life, no doubt. 
But when the Pharisees accused his disciples of eating on the Sabbath day, plucking ears of corn to eat on the Sabbath day, he quotes this verse. And he says, if you'd known what the Scripture meant, that I desired mercy and not sacrifice, Jesus goes on to elaborate that. He says, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Well, which is more important on the Sabbath day? The fact that we refrain from doing anything at all. And therefore, if you're concerned about it might lead to, uh, disciples are hungry. Should we feed people on the Sabbath day or just let them starve? That's a very good question that Jesus is asking these Pharisees. So that it can be very possible for us to know the letter of law. We know word for word. We know every punctuation mark. We know what it says, but we're not quite sure what it actually really means. Um, so uh, that's that's the first scripture we'll look at. The second one is found in uh, Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10, and it's the last uh, portion of verse 8 that's under consideration. The last portion of Hosea 10 and verse 8 says, And they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Well, that, that ought to sound real familiar, ought it? Uh, that's quoted in Luke 23, verse 30, and it's quoted in Revelation 6 and verse 16. The reason that this verse is quoted is because when the Lord at this time in Hosea begins to judge the nation of Israel, when his judgment comes, it is going to come as a fearful and frightful thing to the nation of Israel. And it will be so fearful and so frightful that they will cry to the mountains, cover us and fall on us. Now, in Revelation, when this is quoted, there's a little extra line that's added to that, and it says, Hide us from the face of the Lamb and him that sitteth on the throne. The parallel that exists here is in the way that the Lord judged Israel for their disobedience is paralleled in the way that he will judge this world at the final and last day. There will be a final and last prayer meeting in this world, and it will not be a prayer meeting to God. It will be a prayer meeting to the rocks and the hills and the mountains to fall on us, the wicked will say this, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne. That's, that's a fairly powerful view of the judgment uh, that God is going to execute on this world in the last day. Uh, going on, Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. He says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him. And called my son out of Egypt. Uh, well, <clears throat> here is a reference to something that occurred way back in the book of Exodus. Y'all remember this? Israel was down in Egypt. He sent Moses and called Israel his son. You notice he doesn't refer to it as a nation, but he just refers to it as one single individual. I loved my son, called him out of Egypt. The way that the Lord views the collective nation of Israel is just as one person. Not a culmination of a bunch of people, but a group of one. And the illustration of this is found in, or, or the, uh, the quoting of this is found in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15. When at the birth of Jesus Christ, 
God gave Joseph a dream to take thy wife and thy son down into Egypt for Herod seeks thy life. And the scripture says that it might be fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt. So Herod, uh, uh, Joseph will take Jesus down there for a little bit. And then many years later, he will be called back out of Egypt and brought to the city of Bethlehem. Here's a reference to that. Here's a prophecy of that found in the book of Hosea. Uh, another one here. And this is, uh, this is probably a favorite of most any old Baptist saint and probably any old saint that there is. That if you're looking at the end of your life, if you're looking at your last days, there's a scripture that Paul quotes in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that is quoted quite a lot, specifically at funerals and at graveside services. And it's found here in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14. He says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. The Lord promises us that at the final day, death will be defeated. The grave will be defeated. Sin will be defeated. And this is where Paul asks in 1 Corinthians, verse 15, you know, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? This is where it's quoted. You know, as we said earlier, it's just a few verses that are quoted, but look at what powerful and heavy and weighted doctrines are taught in the New Testament just from a few obscure verses here in this book, in this book of Hosea. What a wonderful thing that this book actually really is. Because, you know, I told you last week, I said, if you're in a bad mood, you probably don't want to read Hosea. If you're in a good mood, you probably don't want to read it either. But if you're in a desperate mood, it might be one of your favorites. The book of Hosea was written prior to uh, the Babylonian captivity uh, and the exile of Israel down in Babylon. And you may can kind of get the idea that we, we realize that the Lord reminded Israel that you're going to spend 70 years down in Babylon. And that 70-year period is a, is a specific period. It's not abstract in the Lord's mind. He didn't just pick 70 years. 70 is a specific reason. You remember this? That, that they were supposed to farm their land, and once every seven years, they were, to let, they were not to farm the land, let it lay fallow, uh, don't bother it. In other words, the six years prior to this, you're supposed to save up. And on the seventh year, don't farm. Let it be a Sabbath year, really, is, is what the Lord was teaching them. But, like most people, they either got sloppy, slothful, or negligent in the first six years. So when the seventh year came along, they either had to plow or plow because he didn't care about the seventh year. So 490 years, they plowed that seventh year. And the Lord finally said, I'm going to get my 70 years out of that 490. I'm getting my time that's due to me. And so I'll send you into Babylon for 70 years and I'll get my Sabbath year. You get that? That's, that's, that's why that 70 is there. And Hosea is, is prophesying, speaking to uh, specifically the ten northern tribes in Israel 
And you kind of wonder if even some of the things that are laid out in Hosea are also reasons that the Lord is going to punish this nation, not just for that Sabbath land rest that they did not observe, but for, as he said in verse 2 of chapter 1, that they had committed whoredoms in departing from the Lord. Human nature is such that it is so easy to do that which is wrong and so hard to do that which is right. Uh, we, we all recognize this. We recognize this in our own life. There's, if we were to sit down in the quiet of our own home and talk to ourselves, we could probably come up with a list, an unending list of all the things that we could do better about our own life just from a practical standpoint that would make our life better in the days ahead. Um, but it's, it's so easy to be distracted with things in this world and it's so hard to just put things aside and do that which is right. And even when we were to do things that were right, then we have another issue. If, if we could pick up and do that which is right, then the question is, are we, are we doing it right unto the Lord? Or are we doing it right just because we don't want to suffer what might be wrong? You get, get what that means for an example. I think everybody in here wants to go to heaven because they want to see Jesus. That should be the desire of every Christian who worships the Lord is that he wants to go to heaven because he wants to see Jesus. You say, why do you bring that up? <clears throat> well, because there are multitudes who are told, you know, if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to go to hell and it's going to be hot and lonely, and dark in hell. Do you want to be hot? Do you want to be lonely? Do you want to suffer? Well, just come up here and accept Jesus, and you can go to heaven. That's the wrong emphasis put on the doctrine. None of us really want to suffer. None of us really want to be alone and in turmoil. Can you not see that that concept of that doctrine really is written more from a... Uh, human standpoint from a selfish standpoint than it is from a God-honoring standpoint. So there's a lot of people who will come down front because they're afraid of, of just the judgment of God in general, maybe. Well, we shouldn't worship God because we're afraid of Him. We should worship God because He deserves to be worshipped. And we should worship Him because we love Him. So... Um, so, for example, when, when, when our parents tell us things to do, we're out amongst our friends, and, and something comes up that maybe our parents would disagree with, I have a choice. Children have a choice to whether or not to, to follow their errant friends down some road to destruction or whether they walk another way, as Jesus would say, here's the broad way and here's the narrow way. And many find this broad way, but few find the narrow way. And so friends may look at children, may, may look at your children or may have said to you in the past, well, you know, come on, let's, let's go steal a car. Let's go, you know, rob a store. Let's go beat this person up and say, well, and you may say, well, no, I don't want to do that. That, that, that may make my father angry or it would disappoint my father. And the friends would often say, well, are you afraid of your daddy? Big deal. All I can do is whip you, right? The issue is not whether or not the child is afraid of the daddy. The issue is whether or not the child respects the father 
and knows that what he's doing is going to hurt the father or the mother's heart. That's that's the difference in that. And if you can figure those two things out, uh, you'd be a whole lot better off. Because I bring that up now because we're we're in chapter one. I want to look at something in chapter one of Hosea uh, because there's there's two verses uh, that I did not read uh, that are quoted in uh, Romans nine and in First Peter chapter two. And both of these verses are in uh, these verse. One of them is in chapter one and verse ten, and the second one is in chapter two and verse twenty-three. And the verse reads this way in, in Hosea one and verse ten, the last half of it: "It shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God." The second verse is much like it in chapter 2 and verse 23. He says, I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. So here are two verses wherein the Lord is promising that there is coming a future time wherein a group of people that were not considered his shall be called his. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 9, and he is speaking specifically of the uh, Gentile nation. If you'd like to turn over there and look at this, uh, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9, because there's a verse that kind of leads into this uh, that, that kind of does us a favor. And when I say it does us a favor, uh, oftentimes if you sit in a primitive Baptist church, uh, you may want to ask yourself, or you may ask yourself, what distinguishes us from everybody else? Um, are, are there scriptures in the Bible that we can kind of look to and say, I think I'm right in what I believe? We don't want to find any scripture in the Bible that we use to make ourselves feel better than everybody else. That's That's not the issue. But you're sitting here thinking, why do I believe this? Is it because... My mama believes it, and uh, my daddy believes it, or my grandfather before uh, him believed it, or my great grand, or I've got you know 15 generations. And is that why I'm here, or am I here because this is what the Bible has to say? I hope you're here because this is what the Bible has to say. Uh, when it comes to the concept of the doctrine of election, there are a lot of pros and cons that people throw out there about this, but. One of the things that people speak about the most is, well, all that election stuff, all that choosing stuff, that only applies to the Jews. That's what a lot of people will say. It only applies to the Jews. If I could give you a scripture that told you that the calling and the election of God applies to Jews and Gentiles, will you believe me? Uh, and the reason I say that, one of our preachers many, many years ago was... Uh, he was preaching a, a revival meeting or whatever you want to call it in some of these other churches, and he starts getting off on this election stuff. And, and after the first night, the, the leaders of the church there called him in the room and they say, Now look, it's all right for you to preach, but you've got to get off that election stuff. We don't believe that here. That election stuff only applies to the Jews. He says, Well, if I can show you a verse that applies to the Gentiles, will you let me stay? Well, absolutely. You can stay. They said that thinking they had him. Romans chapter 9. He says here in verse 22, 
What if God, willing to shew his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory? That's a beautiful verse. Paul is saying here that God has endured some things, these vessels of wrath that are fitted to destruction, and that doesn't mean that God made them to destruction. The Bible teaches predestination is only one way, that God predestined the people to be like Jesus Christ. He did not predestinate anybody to go to hell. What he says about these vessels of wrath, that they are fitted to destruction, it doesn't mean that he predestined them to destruction. He means if you stand back and you look at them, they deserve to be destroyed is what it means. And the reality is, is if you know your life, and if I know my life, and if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say, we deserve the wrath and judgment of God. We are fitted to destruction. It fits us. But what does he say here? That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. What We're not vessels uh, that are going to obtain heaven because we deserve it. We're vessels of mercy. And these are vessels which he afford prepared. He prepared us unto glory. Even us, Paul says, whom he hath called, and Paul says us because he is a Jew. Even us whom he hath called, but what does this say? Not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. This calling and this preparing unto glory of vessels of mercy according to the riches of God's glory is not only on the Jewish nation, but also consists of us, the Gentile nation. And so notice what he says here in verse 25. As he saith also in O.C. Or this is the Greek term for the Hebrew word Hosea. As he also said in Hosea, I will call them my people, which are not my people, and her beloved, which, are, which was not beloved. That's chapter 2, verse 23. Notice verse 26. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. That's chapter 1, verse 10. So Paul is saying here, Hosea is prophesying and Paul is uh, reassuring that what Hosea was talking about is there is coming a day when a people that was not formally called the people of God shall be called the people of God because of something. Prior to the coming of Christ, the Jews were called the people of God. Since the coming of Christ and His death on the cross, Jews and Gentiles collectively are now called the people of God. And this is something that Paul constantly reiterates in the New Testament, specifically to the church at Ephesus. Remember he told the church at Ephesus, he says, you know, you being past uh, aliens from this commonwealth of Israel... Christ has come and He's torn down, He's broken down that middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. And there was this constant argument in the first century as to you know where do the Gentiles fit into this. And some Jews said they don't fit at all. And Gentiles said, yes, we do. And Paul says, yes, they do fit. It's not about genealogy. It's not about blood. It's not about who your parents were. It's because of Christ. 
So in Hosea chapter 1, you know, as again we said, there's only a few verses. 3% of these verses here are quoted in the New Testament, but my gracious, what great and powerful truths they uphold. Now, I want to go back now and look at uh, Hosea chapter 1, kind of back up to the beginning of it a little bit, and, and just kind of take a little bit of a run through it. I'd like for you to notice here, it is in uh, this chapter that Gomer bears to Hosea three children. The first one is called Jezreel in verse 4. Second one is found in verse 6. Her name is Lorahama. And the third one, wait a minute, did I get ahead of myself? Lorahama, and uh, here we go, verse 9. And here's another one, and his name is Loamai. Jezreel, Lorahama, and Loamai. I long for the days of Bob and John and Carl. I don't know about y'all. Uh, but these names are, as we pointed out a little bit last week, these are destructive names. Names in the Bible meant something. There, there was always some definition or some reason that their name was given in the Bible. Uh, contrary to, to what people do in America nowadays, they, come, they just bring up, they just stick their hand in a Scrabble bag and they just pull out a bunch of letters and this is what it is. And, and then they get mad at me for mispronouncing some made-up name that they came up with. Um, what we want to deal with, though, is this name, Jezreel. We don't really want to deal with the other two. Uh, it, it seems to be that Jezreel may be the only legitimate child that Gomer bore to him. Uh, these other two seem to be uh, children of whoredoms that belong to someone else. Um, and of course, that was that was the illustration that God was was showing to Israel through Hosea. Hosea, you go and marry this woman, uh, a woman of whoredoms, and, and this is what it's going to be like as I teach Israel and my relationship with Israel is that I have been a faithful God and a faithful husband, and uh, she, Israel, has been uh, unfaithful. And there's a lot of things that can cause unfaithfulness in relationships. Um, things we don't want to get into. It's, it's, it's not really pertinent to the message. Um, suffice it to say, though, when it comes to God and Israel, there's nothing God could have done that would have legitimized Israel being unfaithful. That we, that we know for a fact. There's nothing that God did that would have legitimized Israel being unfaithful. One of the things he says here is he calls, he says, call his name Jezreel. This is verse 4. He says, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Uh, the, the term Jezreel means to sow, or it means the seed of God. Um, there, are, there are a couple of interpretations about this. That Number one, the nation of Israel should have been a goodly seed, planted in goodly ground. They should have brought forth an abundant harvest. You remember the parable of the sower in 
in Matthew, how the sower went out to sow seed. Uh, there was nothing wrong with the person who sowed. And there's nothing wrong with the seed personally itself. There was something wrong in the ground that the seed fell into. Well, there should have been nothing wrong technically with Israel. They were the, they were the people of God. And so long as they acted like the people of God, God would have blessed them wherever they went. Wherever they fell, wherever they were planted, God would have blessed them. Uh, Joseph is an example of this, that though his family was in one place, he is sold into slavery and he winds up down there in Egypt. But in his uh, practical godliness and in his obedience to God, God blessed him wherever he was planted. The same is true for you and me, that in practical godliness, in obeying the voice of the Lord, God will bless you wherever you're planted. You may not like where you're planted, and, and that, is, that, is, that is worth considering, that there's a lot of us may have wound up in places in life that we didn't imagine when we were children. I never in my life would have thought I would ever live in the city of, in the state of Alabama. There was no more redneck place when I lived in Georgia than the state of Alabama. Well, I know y'all are not offended by that because those of y'all that live in Alabama have Mississippi. And I know that people in Mississippi aren't, you know, offended by that. They've got Louisiana or whatever. Uh, it just kind of goes that way. You think, you know, well, Georgia thinks they're better than everybody else. Yeah, but South Carolina thinks they're better than Georgia. And North Carolina thinks they're better than South Carolina. And the North thinks they're better than... The, you see how that just goes on and on and on. But at any rate, there are... Uh, you know, I never would have thought in my life that I would have wound up here. But here I am. Here you are. So the term Jezreel means, though, the seed of God. And on one hand, had Israel uh, done what Isaiah told them in Isaiah 1 verse 19, if you be... Uh, willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword. On one hand, wherever Israel went, wherever they were planted, they should have been blessed. But they weren't. So something's going to happen. What happens to seed? Not only is it planted, but as we made illustration to the parable of the sower, seed is scattered. Correct? You've seen people with a with a grinding machine that just shoots out. It just goes wherever it's thrown. And that's really what's going to happen to uh, the nation of Israel. They're going to eventually be scattered. And then the church itself, through persecution in the, gospel, in the book of Acts, um, when Saul makes havoc of the church, the church itself is going to end up being scattered. It's going to flee from Jerusalem and plant then in other nations all around the globe. The Lord makes a statement here, though. He says, I will, um, I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. This is a, this is a fascinating text. When you look at the term Jezreel, does that ring any bells with anything that you may have read in the past? Uh, I hope so. Turn to the book of First Kings. In First Kings, we're going to go to twenty twenty one. First Kings twenty one. 
And this, this is going to kind of show you how history is important in understanding uh, the work of God sometimes. It is not the intent to examine this entire chapter, but to show you something's going to start here and it's going to carry on for many years after this. And the thing that's going to start here is in 1 Kings 21, there's a man by Naboth, by the, there's a man by the name of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And he's got a vineyard that's next to uh, King Ahab's palace. Ahab is a wicked king. His wife is even more wicked than he is. Ahab comes out to Naboth and he says, give me your vineyard and I will pay you whatever price you want for this. And Naboth is being sort of sentimental and he says, I'm not giving anybody this vineyard. This is my father's vineyard, my father before him. You know, I was raised here. We have history planted here. Uh, there's no price that you can give me for this. So Ahab, in hearing the word no, uh, becomes thoroughly perturbed. And this is evident of a child who was obviously never told no his entire life. Or he was told no his entire life and got tired of hearing the word no. There are, there are those instances where some children never hear the word no, and so they just think everything ought to be yes when they grow up and they come to be an adult and find out no. Sometimes the word is no. And then you've got a rude awakening. And then, then there are those children who are like, I can't wait to leave home. Y'all ever, y'all, maybe y'all met this. I can't wait till I get out of the house. I'm going to do whatever I want to. Good luck on that one. Tell me how it works out. Well, here's King Ahab sitting in his palace here. He goes home. When Naboth tells him no, he goes home and throws himself down on his bed and he will not eat bread. He's going to starve himself and pout and whine. And in comes his wife, Jezebel, and she says, well, what's wrong? He tells her what I just told you. And she says, don't you worry about it. I'll take care of it. Now, <clears throat> when, if you would, if you knew something about the depravity of man, which we as old Baptists should know something about the depravity of man, this story would not surprise you. Multitudes of denominations don't believe in the depravity of man. But if they took about three seconds to pause and just observe the world, everybody should believe in it. If you don't believe in the depravity of man, then pray tell why the lockers in the police station have locks on them. Just stop and think about that. You know, the police go in, they put their stuff in their locker, and they lock it. The police lock their own lockers. Are you getting that? I mean, you can't even get in the front door of the police station without having a card or somebody buzzing you in. Surely you can trust the people you patrol with. Uh, enough said, right? That's a, that enough said on that one. You know, that's a, that's a that's a sermon in and of itself, right there. We all just just close the book, and go home, right? Anyway, what happens is Jezebel is going to acquire the land of Naboth for her husband. Now, I know you kind of maybe think I forgot what we was talking about, but the Lord talked about, he said, I would um, avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. That's what we're talking about in Hosea. Jehu is going to be called by God to do something. 
Jezebel is not called to God, but she's going to do something as well. Both people are going to end up killing somebody. And both people are going to go about it in two different directions. I'd like for you to notice this here, that I think if you were to do a clinical study of male and female, I think that this is a real good study in both of their characters and their attitudes. Because here's what Jezebel does. Jezebel wants to take the land from Naboth. She's not going to do it herself. So here's what happens. It says in verse 8 of 1 Kings 21, She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letter saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. That's exactly what happens. She gets her way. But I'd like you to notice that what she does is typical of a lot of people nowadays, especially females. Just listen to me. She's not going to go out and stab him herself. She's not going to go out and, and shoot him herself. She's going to destroy his character and have other people do it for her. There's a buddy of mine that runs, uh, works in a correctional facility up in Jasper. You would know him if I gave him his name. And I asked him one time, I said, would you rather be at a men's prison or a women's prison? He said, hands down, men's prison. Never want to work at a female prison. Why is that? He said, because if men hate you, they'll fight you. And you can know who the enemy is, and you can deal with it. If the women hate you, they won't fight you. They'll go behind your back, and they'll destroy your reputation and your character and your career through gossip. And all the ladies said, yeah. Because most of the gossip in school was what? Some little teenage girl. The boys that were mad at each other, they fight it out in the hallway or fight it out on the playground. And usually, if the principal and the teachers would just leave it alone, if the bully got his nose bloodied a couple of times, he'd stop being a bully and the children would go to being friends, right? Well, let's move on. So this is what happens to Jezebel. She, she destroys his character, destroys his reputation with people around her, and they do her dirty work. Well, now we turn to Second Kings. Second Kings chapter nine. In Second Kings chapter nine, a man named Jehu comes on the scene. Jehu is anointed to be the next king over Israel uh, by a young prophet connected with Elisha. And what happens here is starting out in, let's say, let's say, let's just start with verse 22 because of constraint of time. Uh, Jehu has got an armed group with him and they are pursuing or they're, they're coming towards another man's castle. And they spy him coming from a long distance and so they send somebody out to, to meet him and say, hey, are you coming for war or are you coming for peace? And of course his question is, is what do you know about peace? What do you know about peace? The second time he's asked this, though, uh, is, is found in, oh, let's find verse 21. Second uh, Kings 9 and 21. And Joram said, make ready. 
and his chariot was made ready. And Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out against Jehu and met him in the portion of Naboth, the Jezreelites. There's that term again. And it came to pass when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the whoredoms of thy mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. He's, he's angry about what happened way in the past. Boy, you tell me the past can't, can't shape the future. If you don't properly deal with what's going on in the past, you just kind of sweep it on the rug or just kind of let it go by the way. Here's something now. We're, we're years in the future now. And Jehu is fixing to come against the entire house of Ahab because of something that happened long years ago. Now, this is also where we said sometimes you can do the right thing, but for the wrong reason. So what we were talking about a while ago. You can do the right thing, but you can have the wrong reason. Jehu's fixing to do the right thing. And in some cases, he's going to have the right reason. But now he's going to go about it the wrong way. Notice what happens here. When Jehu has a, a, a talk here with Jehoram, it says in verse 24 that Jehu drew a bow with his full strength and smote Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow went out at his heart, and he sunk down in his chariot. Here's the first person that's killed. Jehu's going to do it himself. Um, when we said earlier that, that men and women are different, do y'all believe that men and women are different? Men and women are different. Men are far more likely to be violent than women are. This is why men are, are far more likely to be domestic abusers. They're more likely to be physically abusive. Uh, women are more likely to be emotionally abusive. Watch what happens here. Jehu slays Jehoram with sword, uh, with, with his arrow. And then he rides up to the palace uh, about verses, I'll say about verse 30. Jezebel, she's still alive and she's still part of this. She hears that Jehu is here. And she peers herself outside of a window. And here's Jehu down here on the ground and she's up there on the, on the he can't quite get to her. So what he does is he calls out to these people and he says, who's on my side? And there's, the Bible says that there were two or three eunuchs in verse 32 that said, we're on your side. He says, fine, throw her out the window. And they do. They pitch her out the window and she dies right there on that spot. And it's in that spot then that the dogs of the town come and they eat her up on that spot. You go back and read where we were at in 1 Kings a while ago. This is a fulfillment of that prophecy that occurred right there. Second person that's found their demise under Jehu. Then, you turn to the next chapter, chapter 10, you find out that Ahab had 70 sons that were still alive. What happens to these 70 sons? He sends letters to men and he says, uh, chop their heads off and bring their heads in baskets and pile them up here at the gate door. Now, this is an instance where he kind of parallels what Jezebel did. He didn't do it, but he had people do it for him. I kind of have the feeling, though, if he'd have been there, he'd have done it himself. Seventy sons of Ahab now are going to lose their head. He piles them in baskets, piles them by the gates of the kingdom. 
So it says here in verse 11, and then, uh, this is chapter 10, in verse 11. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, and all his great men, and his kinfolks, and his priests, until he left him none remaining. So somebody killed the 70 sons. This gives you the idea that when Jehu got to wherever he was at, he killed the rest of them or had his army kill them. He was a, there's a great slaughter here that's going on. You get what's happening? Verse 14, they slew the brethren of Ahaziah. Chapter 10, verse 25, uh, you find that all the worshipers of Baal were slain. All the images of Baal are burned. And the house of Baal is torn down. This man is on a vengeance. What's interesting about this is when you start reading about the destruction of the wicked. A lot of people look at this and they focus on the wrong word. They focus on destruction. So how terrible it was that he destroyed the wicked. They never focus on they always focus on the destruction of the wicked. They never focus on the character of the wicked. There's a little, there's a little study here that would uh, be worth your effort to look at. Uh, specifically in verse 25, these priests of Baal uh, that are listed here. Uh, it's the same priests of Baal that Elijah destroyed at Mount Carmel over in 1 Kings 18. Hebrew term for priest is kohen. I believe it's spelled in, in the Hebrew K-O-H-E-N, but uh, we spell it nowadays C-O-H-E-N. Uh, there's a couple of guys who are movie producers called the Cohen Brothers. They produced the movie uh, A Brother Where Art Thou? Some of you have seen it. The term kohen means priest. But if you read it in its Hebrew form, these priests of Baal are these Kohen Baals. If you slow it down enough, it sounds like cannibals. See, these people weren't wicked because they disagreed with you. That's, that's what we're losing in public debate in America nowadays. People are called racist, they're called sexist, they're called homophobe, they're called some type of phobe just because you disagree with someone else. These people are not wicked because they disagreed with what you said. These people are wicked because of what they did. They were cannibals who ate their own and burned their young in the fire. They deserve to be destroyed. Here's an interesting little note here. Uh, you still with me in 2 Kings 10? Second uh, Kings 10, verse 29. Well, verse 28. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. Um, there's an interesting note, I guess it's worth thinking about, that um, the longer that wickedness is allowed to continue, um, the longer wickedness is allowed to continue, um, the more aggressive you're going to have to be to treat it. Uh, it's like cancer. The longer it's allowed to live in you without notice when it is discovered, the more aggressive the treatment is going to have to be when you find it out. Um, and that's, that's kind of something that the Lord alludes to in the book of Hosea 
in, in one of the other chapters that we, we may look at later, but he says, when I would have executed or when I would have judged Israel, behold, the sin of Ephraim was found out. It's, it's kind of like the doctor who says, I'm going to go in and operate. Wow, that's terrible. I've got to close this up. It's worse than I thought. Um, so Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. You look through this and it was very aggressive, everything he did. Verse 29. Howbeit, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not from after them, to wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. This is marvelous. This, this, is, this is a marvelous... Um, looking into of the, of the human depravity of man. Here Jehu is going to come over here and he's going to execute judgment on all this group of people because they're wicked, they worship Baal, and they don't follow God. But he's going to turn right around and come over here to this side and do nothing with the wickedness over here that's exactly the same as that. say, well, what, what's he talking about, uh, Jeroboam? That's 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam is king of the ten northern tribes, and he comes to a point in his, in his uh, rulership that he recognizes um, Israel's got to go back down, or they're supposed to go down into J Jerusalem at least once a year to offer sacrifice. And, and if they leave here and they go back down to Jerusalem, They'll probably leave me. So what I'll do, what I'll do is I'll set up a golden calf here in the, in the tribe of Dan and in the city of Bethel, these two, these two calves, and I'll just tell Israel, it's too far for you to have to go down there in Jerusalem. You just come right over here and you worship these calves, be the same thing. And we do that nowadays. I mean, that, there's, there's a lot of that that goes on in public worship nowadays, if things are too difficult, things too hard, if I've got to travel too far, you know, if I've got to travel over 30 minutes, God, goodness, I don't know if I can be there or not. I mean, you mean I've got to give up my Saturday? My Saturday is my day. I mean, I've got to give up my day to go somewhere and worship the Lord? Good grief. How worthy is He of me? So, Jehu comes over here and grabs onto this and worships that. So, the question then is, all this aggressiveness that, that Jehu brought about, did he bring it about because he loved the Lord? Or because political maneuver? I think those are very reasonable questions. And I think it's at least worth to see that Jehu's motivation was not as pure as it could have been. So he's doing the right thing. He possibly goes to the extreme in doing it and then does it in the wrong manner. When you go to Hosea chapter 1, the Lord said then that I would uh, avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. And he said here in verse 10 of chapter 1, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. 
Uh, and what maybe what something else I also thought about this was Isaiah 46 and verse uh, 10, wherein the Lord says uh, in verse 9, He says, "I'm I'm the Lord, and there is none else. I'm God, and there's none like me." Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. Y'all remember that verse, right? Well, in about verse 10 or 11, he says, uh, Calling a, a ravenous bird or calling a man from a far country to execute my, my counsel. And in Isaiah, what he's talking about is, there's going, he's going to raise up a man named Cyrus to come into Babylon, and he's going to eventually lead uh, Israel out of Babylon and allow them to go back home. He's going to call this man from a far country. He's going to come and execute his counsel in Babylon, release Israel, and then go back home. Well, Jehu sort of was like that. He came from a far distance to execute God's counsel and his judgment on the house of Ahab, but he went too far with it. What's going to solve the problem? Because the next human being that God raises up may very well do the same thing, right? Uh, he's going to call Jonah, a man from a far country, to go into Tarshish or go into Nineveh and preach against him. What's Jonah going to do? He's going to get in a boat and go the other direction. How many human beings is God going to have to go through till He finds one that does the right thing the right way? He'll have to go through every one of them and every one of them will find some reason to be unfaithful to God is the reason for this. So one day, the God of glory Himself shall descend from heaven and come into the lower parts of the earth to be conceived in a virgin's womb. He will live 33 and a half years and finally one day go to a cross on Calvary and there he will execute the judgment of God against the, the elect family. He will endure the wrath of God. And because he is an individual who was said in Hebrews chapter 1, because thou lovest righteousness and hated iniquity, thou wast anointed with all above thy fellows. He is an individual who can do the right thing in the right manner at the right time for the right reason. And so that's how you can get from Jezreel to Jesus. Is that Jesus Christ will be a man that will come from a far country. He will come down to this low ground of sin and sorrow. He will give His life on the cross. As Matthew 1 and 21 says, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. The abominations and the iniquity that belongs to us all will be laid upon the holy, harmless, undefiled, sinless, separate from sinners, Lamb of God. And He will be crucified for all the sins of God's elect people. And because of Him, there will come a day when those that were not His people shall be called His people. And those that did not know the living God shall be called the sons of the living God. And in Hebrews, Paul tells us that here stands Jesus, that He one day shall stand in front of the Father and say, Behold, I and the children which Thou hast given Me, without the loss of one, because His ancient man came from a far country, his ancient man came down to a people, you and me, who had given up freely what God had given to us. He will come down and He will reclaim them. He will come down and He will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. 
And actually what he will do is he will avenge the blood of you and me upon his own son, Jesus Christ. And it will be a sure sacrifice. It will be a sure sacrifice that accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish. This is why when we preach, we do not say that Jesus is offering salvation to you. You're not under consideration in the acceptance of this. God Himself and Jesus Christ were the only ones involved in that. Christ offered Himself to God on your behalf and God accepted what Christ offered and that's it. When Jesus said it's finished, He meant exactly that. God has no more need to find any man, Jehu, Cyrus, or anybody else to come and free the nation of Israel, to free His elect people. He's got a man. There's one man that stands between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. He is the one that stands between you and between God, and He is the one that makes peace with God for you. When God says, I will do this, I'd like for you to also notice verse 7. Hebrews, uh, Hosea, Hosea chapter 1 and verse 7. Remember we said that the theme of Hosea was uh, found in uh, Hebrew, in, in a Hosea 13 and verse 9, uh, uh, Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. Here's another one here. Hosea chapter 1 and verse 7. He says, but I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. And the term Judah in Hebrew really means praise. He says, I will have mercy upon the house of praise. And I will save them by the Lord their God. He doesn't say, I will save you by your obedience or by your baptism or by your confession. Or I'll save you if you get the second baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and jump over pews. He says, I will save them by the Lord their God. And will not save them by bow. An army was not going to come do this. Nor by sword. You're not going to have to fight this. Nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. It will not be by my might. It will not be by my power. It will not be by my strength. It will be only... By the Lord of glory Himself. That He will save the house of Judah. Now when we said earlier that this book is kind of a depressing book. It is when you just read it right through. But when you pause to look and see what's written in these pages. To me it is a It is a beautiful declaration of the grace of God. How we're able to move from the house of Jezreel to the person of Jesus. Ought to make us a more grateful people, don't you think? It ought to to make us a more thankful people. The world's full of bitterness. The world's full of complaint. You know, don't let complaint be a part of your life all the time. It'll mess your spirit up. It'll ruin your life. There are far more things for us to be thankful for than there are to be grateful. That's why we sing the song, Count Your Many Blessings. Name them one by one. What a, what a comforting song that is based completely 
sovereign grace of Almighty God. Thank you so much for your good and kind attention.